good morning, church. Happy Father's Day to all the dads and dad figures, both in the room and online. Hey, to all the guys who have shaped us and taught us, who have led us and loved us, today we celebrate you. Let's hear it for the dad, church. Yeah. And like Mark said, we got a tent out there for you. Those of you online, sorry, but hey, there's still time to drive in. Get yourself some dad soda, a little gift gadget for the way home. Check out the cool car. Wasn't that a great story about Billy? I mean, I love that. And that dude is a servant and good, good stuff. Well, hey, if you are curious what to get as a gift for the dad figure in your life, for starters, you're probably a little late, <laughs> but you know, hit the store after. But here are just a few things that all the dads I know would actually love to receive. For starters, every dad I know wants his children to live in the blessing of being, uh, being his child, right? Like every dad I know wants to bless their children. But in order to receive that blessing, it means you got to like lean into the wisdom that dad offers. So kids out there, right? No matter how old you are, young, old, like, you know, if you're in your 40s, lean into the wisdom from your dad that'll honor him, that'll make his day. Secondly, dads want their kids to get along. They want to know that their kids are getting along well with one another. So you want to get your dad a cheap gift, just be kind to your siblings today. Like that's the first step. And then the the third thing that I think every dad would love is this thing, the Resvani tank. Like if James Bond were to have a Jeep, this would be it. This thing comes complete with like bulletproof windows and everything. It's got a smoke screen, got a thousand horsepower engine. It even has electrified door handles upon, uh, like you could set that up to keep people from breaking into it. The thing is awesome. Hint, hint. It's also like 250 grand. But hey, who's counting, right? Super cool. Now I think God... Wants those same that well, not that, but God wants his kids to be under his blessing and he wants his kids to get along, just like every earthly father does as well. Like we get that from God the Father. And we want the kids to be blessed, we want the kids to get along, but we know that that doesn't always happen, that harmony doesn't come natural to children, harmony doesn't come natural in the family. And if you have any doubt that that's the case, just throw a couple kids in the backseat of the car and set off on a long road trip. And you'll find harmony is not natural. So we got to work on that at times. And it's no different in the church as it is in home. In fact, it might be even harder in the church because it's not blood family. It's kind of this conglomerate weird family, if you're being honest, man. We get a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, and it can be tough. And that's why James, the younger brother of Jesus, who knew a little bit about family tension, he wrote this to the early church. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Do you hear the family dysfunction there? Some siblings are treating other siblings better than they would treat other ones. And then he goes on. It says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Two guys walk into the church, kind of like a joke, right? Like three guys walk into a bar, a priest, a rabbi, and an imam. The bartender looks at him and says, what is this, some kind of joke? 
Come on. Uh, happy Father's Day. Leave it at that. So two guys walk in, into the church. I almost said that wrong. Two guys walk into the church. And one of them is rich and the other is poor. And then he goes on and says this. This is how you treat him, right? Verse 3. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person. Now I'm not sure where the good seats in the church are. But I think they're actually further to the front than some of you think. So you give the good seat to the rich person. But you say to the poor person, you could stand over there or just sit on the floor. Well, doesn't your, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? He continues on. Listen, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that royal law is found in the book of Leviticus. Most likely Moses was the author writing the law as inspired by God for the Israelites way back in the day. But Jesus quoted that same thing. Once Jesus was pressed by some other law keepers at his time, and they said, hey, what's the greatest command? He said, well, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. These two things are together. They're inseparable. Love God, love others. And then he continues on. He says, but if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. And you're guilty of breaking that law of loving others. Now, a little background is helpful for us or give us a little context. The Jewish people had been conquered by the Romans. And the Romans were oppressing the Jewish people. And they put exorbitant taxes upon small landowners and these small farmers. And the small farmers were driven out of business. And many of them became tenant farmers on larger estates. Owned Some were owned by Romans. Some were owned just by the wealthiest Jews. And so there was tension between the poor and the wealthy. And, and this tension went so far as that some of those landowners, the wealthy landowners who had tenants on the farm, they knew that there was people, there was discord against them. And so they hired their own hit squads to keep people in line. So you've got this tension happening between the rich and the poor. And that's kind of out in the country, right? Out, out, you know, away from the city. But it also happened within the city. For example, the city of Jerusalem built on a hill. And so the richest people lived up on top of the hill. You had the, the upper city, and that's where the wealthy lived. In part because things have to flow down from the hillside. And so they had sewage systems back in that day like we have today, but most of them are a little more open air. And so the poor people lived downhill and downwind from the upper city if you catch the drift. And you have their stuff running through your neighborhood. That's going to cause some tension. There was this disconnect, this discord, and this just this angst against the wealthier people. But even with all that going on, you had these, these Jewish people who were uh, trying to get close to the Romans, and, and then you had Jewish people who were just poverty-stricken. But for the Christians, it was worse than it was for anybody else because they were ostracized by all of them. But even still, even with all that background, you had some of these people in the church who were trying to get in good with the wealthy to try and get something good from them. And, and we get that. We know how that is. We understand the temptation to try and get into people, to get in with people who can benefit us. We show favoritism to those, I think I said, we are tempted to show favoritism to those who can benefit us, while we often neglect the ones who need us to benefit them. 
And that's just a natural temptation of the human heart. But we see right before James writes all this that he ends chapter one. Now, James wasn't writing with chapters and verses in mind. Those were added later. He was just writing a letter. But at the end of chapter one, James writes this. Pure and genuine religion. And he doesn't talk about empty orthodoxy kind of religion. He's talking about a devout faith and followership. He says that the pure kind in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now these orphans, these widows, these are people who at that time and that culture could add no social standing, no value, per se, to your life. They would be a burden. That they had no money, they had no status, that they had no perks, that they were the least of these, they were the left outs, they were the ostracized, they had no ability to gain wealth or to gain status, so they weren't going to add to your social standing. But what James says, echoing the heart of God, is, hey, these people are still valuable in God's sight. And though they might not add social status or economic status to your life, it will very likely add relational value and benefit and beauty to your life. So connect with them. Friend, I wonder for us, do we ever treat some people better than others? Do you ever treat some people better because what you can get from them, what they'll give to you? Maybe they cover your meals, they loan you their stuff, they take you to nice places, they treat you well. Do you ever treat some people better because you know they can repay the favor at times? Do you ever avoid some people because they're just more taxing because they're the ones who need something from you or you fear they might need something from you? Do you ever avoid some people because they might hurt your social standing? Oh, you were hanging out with that person, those people? There is a temptation for some to do that. Now, we know that if you're the one who has this stuff, Maybe your wealth is in a certain kind of possession. You know that some people are just going to buddy up to you to try and benefit from you. Any dudes in here own a truck? Yeah, any of you say, all right. So you, yeah, those of you who own a truck, you know that you are everybody's best friend when it comes time to move anything, right? You have a boat, you have a pool. Suddenly you got a whole lot of buddies come Memorial Day that you haven't seen since last Labor Day, right? Like you know what it is when you have something. Some people want to get in close because they just want you to benefit them. Well, in the church that James was leading, that Jim was leading there in Jerusalem, there was a temptation to make the wealthy feel welcome. And that's not bad unless it's happening, as it did there, at the expense of the poor. So James uses this example of economic favoritism financial favoritism it was the most in-your-face example he had for his church at that time but we know that that exists in our culture as well but it's not the only kind of favoritism it's one of the more obvious but it's not the only kind we know there's also racial and ethnic favoritism and that's a sensitive topic in our culture and it was a sensitive topic in that culture back then and this is something that runs through all cultures all over the world I was talking the other day to Jerry Kennedy, one of our missionaries in South Africa. He's, a, uh, he's there, been there for a long, long time, since the 90s, training up church leaders and helping strengthen the churches in Cape Town, South Africa, a metropolitan area of 4 million people, helping the churches grow and thrive. But he was telling me about the favoritism that they have even in that culture, that you have whites against whites, the 
the British whites, the ones who descended from them, don't get along with the people who descended from the Dutch. And so there's tension there. And then you have these, uh, these Africans who don't get along. There's at least 11 different tribes, and within those tribes, several different clans. And clans don't get along with clans, and tribes don't get along with tribes. And, and then you have the, the mixed-race people who don't get along with any of them. And so there's this tension between all of them, and the whites, and the blacks, and the tribes, and the clans, and who they came from, and where they descended from. And you have this favoritism that's shown even still to this day. And, and so whatever the background might be, whether it's now and contemporary, whether it's here in the States or it's in South Africa or it's way back in the first church, the background might be different, but God's goal and God's heart is always the same. He wants to make us all one through his son, Jesus. So we should not show favoritism to each other. There's also an educational favoritism. And sometimes we can favor people who are highly educated over those who have learned their learn their skills through life experience or who've learned a trade. Sometimes that partners up with career favoritism. We tend to think more highly of certain careers than we do of others. Now, I love the work that Mike Rowe, the guy from Dirty Jobs, is doing to say maybe not everybody needs to go into a college education. Maybe they should pursue a, a trade. And he's pushing people back towards the trades and rekindling the nobility of those professions, the profession of working HVAC or being a mechanic or restoring cars or being a craftsman and working with your hands. And those are good trades to have. And being a carpenter, those kinds of things. In fact, it seems like somebody in the Bible was a carpenter. That was kind of a noble thing, maybe. You know, and, and if you don't think those are noble or valuable things, just wait till your heat goes, or wait, wait till your heat goes out in the winter. Wait till your AC goes out in the middle of the summer. And you'll be reminded how noble those trades are. Sometimes there's gender favoritism. If you communicate with Somebody from one gender more respectfully than you would of the other gender, that's favoritism. If you trust somebody on our church staff more based on her or his gender, that's favoritism, regardless of the direction it flows. We can also see age favoritism, which is wrong as well. That the young and old can be against each other and can just discount each other in dangerous ways. We all know that there are some older people who are very cynical of younger generations. And there are younger people who discount and dismiss the older people based, you know, perspective. And they dismiss their wisdom they have to offer. And that tension can run rampant in some churches. But a healthy church is one where young and old look past the generational lines. And they seek to pursue an intergenerational relationship. Honoring and respecting and showing dignity to one another. I'm going to push on the older generations for just a moment. And I'm getting older, so this includes me, pointing the fingers back at me. We can't just look at the younger people and get upset without asking ourselves how have we contributed to what we don't like? What's our part in this? Because it's up to us to mentor them and disciple them, to invest in them, to love them, to lead them, to show them. And to be willing to accept that they may do some things a little bit differently. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different. But it's up to us to lead them towards Jesus. I think there's oftentimes a disability favoritism that goes overlooked. That we might treat some people who have mental or physical disabilities differently. Maybe we're intimidated because we're not sure how to interact with them. And so we don't. And that's wrong. 
And I know with that there becomes a social favoritism where some families, when they get together for play dates, they may exclude other families who have a child who might be uh, ability different, who might be a little more challenging to interact with. And we should not do that, friends. That should not be in the church. We all know that there is an appearance favoritism. Research reveals that we all have biases that are unconscious, that we don't even understand. We show favoritism in ways that we don't even realize we do. There are massive amounts of research that show how this plays out in the work world, where well over 50% of the people who are in, in the task of hiring others hire based on biases. And, and this is found that they, they favor those who are fit, who are attractive, and who are stylish. And, and so you have these people who you know, are fit, attractive, and fashionable people who tend to get the job. Now, I'm really glad our elders did not look at those qualifications when they were hiring me. That was a, that was a good thing for me. But we know that that happens in the work world. Friends, we know that money and looks and education can influence how we treat people. But that should not happen in the church. And one of the ways that we see this playing out is when there are blind auditions done or blind interviews done where we don't know the person's name, we don't know their gender, we don't know their ethnicity. And what we find is in all of these studies when it's a blind interview, the number of women and minorities hired goes up substantially. Now they're not getting hired because of their gender or because of their ethnicity, but neither are they getting looked past because of their gender or their ethnicity. And that tells us something. And and so while we know that in the world that looks and money and education can win us an advantage and sometimes an unfair advantage, we should never look upon one another that way in the church. We should never evaluate or assess one another here by those terms. After all, Jesus knew what what it was like to be judged by appearance. He wasn't a wealthy person. He came from the wrong town. Can anything good come from that city, they asked. He came from the wrong family. He hung out with the wrong people. He did not have the right education, did not have the right training to be a rabbi. By all appearances, he was not a person that others should have been following, and yet he was a son of God. So we need to be careful in how we may judge others. Now, we don't have time to explore all the various types of favoritism that exist, I think there's denominational favoritism. There's political favoritism. Praise God, that doesn't exist in our culture. There's athletic favoritism, career favoritism, regional favoritism. Are you from the beach, the mountains, or the cornfields? Hmm. There's location favoritism. Are you from the city or the sticks? And people from each one can look down upon the other. But I do want to consider one more type of favoritism that can sometimes go unseen, unnoticed. Friend, if you have a heart for... The, the underdog. If you have a heart for the downtrodden, you need to know that God champions it because your heart is aligned with his. But I want to caution you to be careful of that. Because sometimes for, for every obvious form of favoritism there is, there's also the subtle favoritism that reacts against it, swings the pendulum to the other side, where we can look down upon some people simply because they have an advantage regardless of how they may be using that advantage, even if they're using that advantage to grow the kingdom of God and to benefit others, simply because they might have something that seems more advantageous going in their favor. Some people can look down upon that, and that is favoritism. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, the same book where we 
learn that royal law of love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus chapter 19 says this. Don't twist justice by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Judge people fairly. Don't cater to the poor, but don't cater to the rich. Treat them all equally. So we can get this wrong in both directions. We can get it wrong in both ways. Sometimes we can evaluate the wealthy in terms that are unfair to them. So God in this passage is not asking us to discriminate against the wealthy. He's telling us don't show them undue favoritism, but neither should we show them undue criticism. Neither should we be against them. Friend, if you're hard on people who have an advantage that others don't have, be very careful of that. Do everything you can to help the disadvantaged. Do everything you can to get those other people who may be able to help the disadvantaged. But be cautious not to treat anyone more favorably than you might treat somebody else. I'd sum it up this way. Just don't become a hater. Don't be hating. (laughs) No matter who it is, don't be a hater on them. Because we know that there's way too many of those people in the world as it is. And we don't need any of them in the church. Any of that attitude. Now, as much as we should not show favoritism to others, we also got to be real with this passage. And we got to admit that sometimes we like favoritism to be shown to us. Sometimes we want the VIP treatment, the swag, the good seat. Sometimes we want people to treat us better than what we might actually deserve or treat us the way we think we do deserve. And sadly, this can creep into the church and it can creep in in really insidious ways. Do you ever feel like you should have a little more sway because of how much you give? Because of how much you serve? Because of how long you've been around this place? Because of what your last name is? It's only natural for those feelings to creep in. But those are not right. So we have to stay vigilant and work against those to remind ourselves that God's economy is radically different than ours. In God's kingdom, longevity is not, I think we got a slide for this. In God's kingdom, longevity is not a qualification for increased recognition, but rather for increased responsibility. It's not about upping our status, but upping our service. And guys, since it's Dad's Day today, I'm going to push on us a little bit. I think it's great that we have a day to honor dads, but let's not let the recognition get to our heads. Let's allow it to motivate us to lean into the sacred responsibility we have to lead and love our families well. That's our job. That's what today should be about, is nudging us towards even more service and even more humility as we love our families. I have a friend who was the headline speaker at a conference, and uh, He spoke several times during the conference, evenings, mornings, evenings, mornings. And and it was the first morning of the conference. He asked if he'd get a cup of coffee. And they directed him to this fancy coffee bar they had set up just for him. Had the finest coffee and and imported coffee. Had the finest creamers and sugars and everything. It was high-end. Everything was high-end. They even had a special ceramic gift mug for him. And then they took him to a special seat at a special table because he was a special speaker. Now, just a couple years after that, he returned to the same conference, but this time he was a participant and not the speaker. So the morning, first morning of the conference, he says, hey, I'd like to get a cup of coffee. And they directed him to a very cheap, generic coffee bar with 
cheap generic coffee and cheap generic cream. They didn't have cream. They just had the cheap sugars and everything and a paper cup. And as he held the paper cup in his hand, he had to chuckle to himself as how far he had fallen in status at this place. But as he shared this with me and a handful of other guys, he said, but the reality is I deserve the paper cup all along. Friends, regardless of the achievements we've made, of the earthly success we have, regardless of all the other accolades, may we never seek to be anything more than simply people of the paper cup. Because that's what we are, all of us. No better, no worse. Let us not ask for people to show favoritism to us and let us not show it to others. Now James continues on. Says, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. Now that seems a little odd to us. All right, seems a little weird. Murder, adultery, break the whole law. What's he talking about? Well, again, a little context is helpful here. At that time that this was written, there was a group of Jewish people called the Zealots. And the Zealots were against the Roman Empire. And so they were, they were violently revolting against them. They also resented the wealthy Jewish people who were trying to buddy up with the Romans and get in good through politics and other means. And so these zealots were leading riots, but they would also show up at the temple. There was a group of zealot protesters who would show up at the temple. Now, these people considered themselves very religious, very devout. They would not break any of God's laws. You know, one of the the grandmas, you know, they're definitely not going to commit adultery on their spouse. But they would show up at the temple and stab people of the other political party to death. Do you get the absurdity of this? Like, you're going to stab somebody to death at church. In the praise of God's name. That is messed up, man. That is jacked up. It's not okay, right? We're like, oh, man, I would never break. I would never cheat on my spouse. I'll kill that guy. I'll never like. And they're like, whoa, 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 hold on, right? So James is poking on this. And it says, hold up. All of us are right there. It says all of us have broken God's law. And because of that, all of us are guilty of breaking all of God's law. And I know sometimes it's tempting to, to think maybe God has a scale system he uses, this big heavenly scale that, you know, we could tip the scale one way or the other. You know, one side of the scale is our bad stuff, and the other side is our good deeds. And if our good deeds tip the scale in our favor, woo, we're good, we're in with God. The problem is we all have an overinflated view of how good we actually are, and we have a rather deflated view of how bad we actually are. And James says it doesn't matter because it just doesn't work like that at all in the first place. This is just not the way it works. That's ridiculous. I think to help us understand this, think of it this way. Let's say my boy and I are out back and we're throwing the football. And I throw a lightning fast spiral. Man, it's a great pass, but it's just a little high, a little out of reach for him. Just high enough, it's out of reach. Just high enough, it sells over the fence. Goes in the neighbor's yard and gets intercepted by the corner of their huge, beautiful window. So I go over to my neighbor. I hand him 20 bucks and say, hey, this should cover the part of the window I broke, right? This window, like, you know, huge. Does it work that way? I didn't break the whole window. I just just broke the corner of it. It's like cracked, a little little hole down there. 
No, you break a part of that window, you've compromised the integrity of the whole window. You break that one part of the window, the whole thing now does not function as it's supposed to. Now, that hasn't happened. I hope that doesn't, but you get the idea. So if one part is broken, the whole thing is broken. Jim says that's the way it is with God's commands. The whole New Testament says that's the way it is with God's commands. Love God, love others. If you break that law of loving others in one spot, then you're guilty of not loving others in its entirety. And God says, by the way, one of the ways you love me is by loving others. If you love me, you'll love my kids. If you don't love my kids, you don't love others, you, you don't love me. You, you've broken one part, you've broken the whole thing. We do ourselves harm when we think of God's laws, his commands as disjointed and separate and isolated. We would be better off thinking of it as a, as a quilt stitched together, woven together in this fabric of his quilt placed over us so that we could be covered in his love and the love of others by giving love to him and giving love to one another. But you begin to tear that fabric in one area, you, you begin to unravel the whole thing. And, and so it's really not about just obeying one command or one rule here and there. It's about submitting and surrendering to the authority of the author of those commands. Realizing his love and his way really is what's best for us. See, to break even just one of the commands is defiance against the authority of God. We gotta be really careful of that. So James goes on with a warning. He says, whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. He says, if you've been shown mercy, be sure to show it to others. Because once you stop extending it to others, well, you may well find that that mercy fountain dries up for you. See, our hearts are still bent inward at places. We know that. All of us are more prejudiced than we even realize. We have biases we're not even conscious of. We have a greater sense of entitlement that we would care to admit. We have more pride than we probably even know. Those around us are probably more aware of our pride than we are. But none of us has it all together. And that's why God invites us to receive his mercy. So that he can restore us in those broken places, in those inner places. So that we might be able to love others the way he loves them. So that we might be able to understand better the way he loves us. So friend, if you have received his mercy, give it freely. And this doesn't mean you gotta be buddy-buddy with everybody in the church, but it does mean we all need to show dignity and respect and a genuine concern for everyone else. Not treating any as better than another. Not treating any as worse than another. Because every one of those people is made in God's image, just like you. Every one of them is loved by God, just like you. Jesus died for every single one of those people, just like he died for you. And God wants relationship for eternity in his heaven with every one of those people, the same as he does with you. So friend, this means that the cross of Jesus Christ destroys any defense I might make to treat some people as better than others. It erodes and eliminates any sense of entitlement I might have that I should be treated better than someone else. 
Because all of us, without exception, are in desperate need of God's mercy, desperate for his grace, and we're doomed without it. But the really, really good news, the beautiful golden news of the gospel, the good news of the cross, is that God extends his mercy and he extends his grace freely without favoritism to every single one of us. And that includes you. So friend, I hope you receive his mercy. I hope you receive his grace and I hope you show it freely to others. Because if we really do know the Father's love for us, then we can't help but show it to others. And the way that we interact with others demonstrates how we think God interacts with us. If I think that I should or can be favorable to some, that means I probably think God might be that way with me. We don't want God to deal with us that way because none of us have earned it. None of us deserve it. We need his mercy. We want his mercy. We don't want his justice. So friend, my prayer for you today is that you know the mercy of our merciful God, that you know the grace of our loving God, that you know the love of God and that you will be a conduit to show that mercy and to show that grace and to show that love to everyone else, everywhere you go, every time you can to help as many as possible find and follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that you are not a God who plays favorites. We're thankful that you are a God who loves us not based on the merit of our goodness because none of us are good enough. God, we thank you that you don't treat us as we deserve, but instead you treat us with mercy and you give us your grace because you are a good God, a good father who loves your children. God, may we reflect your love to a hurting, broken world that is desperate for mercy. God, transform us. We thank you. We praise you. And with this next song, Lord, we pray that our hearts would cry out to you and to you alone with praise and with honor because you and you alone are worthy. Amen.